The Eagle and Child, Episode 30. Mere Christianity, Book 4, Chapter 2, The Three Personal God. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week, my friend Matt and I share a beer, and we discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and today's episode, we're going to begin looking at the Trinity with C.S. Lewis and, of course, my friend Matt. Hello, friends. And as we continue our journey through Book 4, we're getting into deeper theology. In the previous chapter was about making versus begetting. A person can make a statue, and that resembles a human, but it's not of the same substance, like begetting a child. This is the same with us and God. We're made, Jesus is begotten. And the ultimate conclusion of that last chapter was that the statues become alive. That's what the Christian faith offers, participation in that divine life. And that divine life in heaven is perfect communion with God, where we become one with God. Now, building from that, this week we look at answering, how do we become one with God, yet remain a distinct individual? And not only distinct, but we become more perfectly ourselves at the same time. So what's the quotation this week? It's from Mere Christianity, which David doesn't like when I take him from Mere Christianity. He wants other Lewis works coming in. Yeah, people want to hear him from other C.S. Lewis books. Which, with 50 chapters probably, (laughs) now I hit a 90% hit rate on this. Lewis says, The union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. That does fitting because we're going to be talking about the three personal God. Uh, for our little beverage today, we are going with a classic. We are drinking some Guinness. I've been in a Guinness factory in Ireland. Me too. Actually, it was the first time that my mother actually liked Guinness. Because I went, I went to Ireland with my mum. And she said, oh, I don't like Guinness. Don't like Guinness. And then we tried some at the Guinness factory. I think it's the different water. The water comes from the, the Liffey River. And I, I think you're right. And also, uh, I guess this wouldn't apply to your mother who lives in England. But I guess they have nitrogen-infused taps there, which is different than the United States. But that wouldn't be a difference for her. No. <laughs> anyway, my mother doesn't go to the pub that often. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, cheers. Cheers. I always love Guinness. This, this was my drink in, at university. So good. Because I'm a student and I'm poor, and drinking Guinness is kind of like having a meal. You think so? Oh, I actually you... think it's really light for how dark it is. Um, yeah. They actually used to give it to pregnant women because it's high in iron. Huh. Yeah. Ladies, those of you who are pregnant, back in the good old days, the doctor would write you a prescription for Guinness. Isn't that amazing? That's actually unreal. <laughs> so after recapping the details of the previous chapter, Lewis says that many people believe in God, but not in a personal God. He says that they feel that the mysterious something which is behind all other things must be more than a person. I mean, what do you think he means when he says that? Well, more than a person. I think what they mean is like different than a person. It's it's, obviously it's not like us. Mm -hmm. I think it's that we seem too simple. Yes. A person is too simple for the creator of everything that maintains all of existence. Yeah. But I think what they're getting at when they, they say it's more than a person, but it's not personal. 
we can we we believe personal like relatable almost like this small intimate thing but a god that can create this universe billions of people can't really be that personal i think it's i think it's the in, intuition to the transcendent the idea that god has to be something that transcends our own understanding something more than a person yeah well lewis says that well, he actually makes a very bold claim he says the only system which offers an idea of a god beyond personality is christianity he says All other people, though they say that God is beyond personality, really think of him as something impersonal. That is, as something less than personal. He goes on and says, If we're looking for something super personal, something more than a person, then it is not a question of choosing between the Christian idea and the other ideas. The Christian idea is the only idea on the market. And when I read this, I I haven't studied other religions, so I don't know if this is a fair statement or not. I'd have to leave that to the experts. I don't know if you've dug into it at all. I would say it's pretty fair. Okay. Um, there are definitely among the Eastern religions, the concept of divinity gets much harder to wrap your, wrap your arms around and your head around. Um, but I would say, yeah, that's basically fair. For individuals who don't believe in a personal God, but they believe in a God of some sort, an impersonal God, call it, when they talk about the afterlife, when you die, what happens... It's as if you're being absorbed into something. And he uses an analogy, think of like a material thing being absorbed into a material thing. I think he gives the example of a drop of water being absorbed into the ocean. Yes, two material things. But then he points out the drop of water is no longer a drop of water. It ceases to exist after it's absorbed into the ocean. In that particular sense, yeah. And you still find this idea alive and well in pantheistic religions and in that very vague, broad category of what we call New Age. And here's where he transitions to Christianity. We do somewhat believe this, but we, we actually flesh the idea out in its proper way. Because we talk all about becoming one with God, almost like being absorbed in God in the Trinita- Trinitarian love, the Trinitarian life, that divine life. And in fact, we talk about what is heaven, perfect communion with God. So how do we make sense of that where we become absorbed in God, we're taken up into the life of God, which is the entire purpose of Christianity, and yet we remain individual. We remain separate. And this idea of of being drawn into the life of God, if you recall in the previous chapter, Lewis compared bios, which is our natural life, and zoe, which is the supernatural life, and we can only get that from God. And as you say, he says this is the point of Christianity. And again and again in this book, he doubles down. He says, this is what Christianity is about. There are lots of ancillary things that are important and great, but the point of Christianity is to be drawn up into the life of God, to receive this Zoe life, to become fully alive. And what a gift. I mean, that's when we talk about the adventure of Christianity, the beauty of Christianity. This is what we're referring to, this idea. It's not just about becoming a better person or getting rid of your sins. It's so much more. So Lewis now begins an example he's going to build on in this chapter. And it's based on the progression of geometric shapes as you go into different dimensions. So if you're not a math geek, (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, At university, I did a bunch of uh, graphics courses where you learn the kind of geometry in order to build 3D games. And so this this stuff makes a little bit more sense to me. But anyway, this is what Lewis says. If you're using one dimension you could only draw a straight line. If you're using two, you could draw a figure, say a square. 
And a square is made up of four straight lines. So it's the idea of you go from lines to an actual figure. And then he says, now step further. If you have three dimensions, you can build what we call a solid body, say a cube, a thing like a dice or a lump of sugar. And a cube is made up of six squares. So you have these geometric shapes that progressively build on each other. When you do computer graphics, you start with drawing 2D images, and then you add the third dimension. And as you go deeper from dimension one, two, three, you never lose the first dimension or the second dimension. The, the lines are still there. The squares are still there when you're in the third dimension. So as you're going deeper, as you're advancing into these, call it more complicated levels, complicated dimensions, you're not leaving anything behind from the simple You're building levels. on it. You're building on it. And, and, and what's amazing, though, is they're combined in new ways and in ways you really couldn't imagine if you only lived in the simpler levels. Mm-hmm. And so as these figures are joined together to create this ultimate figure, th- these, these lines are more fully becoming themselves, but they're still distinctly themselves. But becoming something greater. Becoming something greater. And now we're starting to get closer to a three-personal God. Yeah, Lewis says that the same principle here works in the Christian account of the three-personal God. Because at a human level, we're only used to one person, one being. You are a person, you are a being. I'm a person, I'm a being. It's like we're separate geometric shapes. Uh, I'm a triangle, you're a square. (laughs) But he says, on the divine level, you still find personalities. But up there, you find them combined in new ways, which we, who do not live on that level, cannot imagine. In God's dimension, so to speak, you find a being who is three persons, but remaining one being. Just as a cube is six squares, while remaining one cube. And he says, we can't fully conceive of a being like that. Just as if you, say, lived in a two-dimensional world it would be very difficult to imagine properly what a cube actually is. But you can get this sort of faint notion of it. You can get an idea as to what this might be like. The point of Christianity is we participate in that Trinitarian love and that transforms us. That's becoming one with God and the Trinity. But again, how do we do that without losing ourselves? Well, now we see it. We get a picture here that we can still be a distinct figure with our own personality in a more real and full personality, but yet be part of this greater community in the Catholic heaven. We're all become one in God together. Hard to grasp. Kind of mind-blowing, yeah. This starts to paint a picture, though, how you can see that work out. In neural networks, correct me if I'm wrong, I never did a course on this at university, so I only read them briefly. This is my life. But you have multi-dimensions, right? You, when They're you... multi-layers, hidden yes. layers. Yes. And they all come together to create this incredible picture that you have no idea actually what's happening at the individual. They're all distinct too, actually, entities. But they come together to form this network that somehow can drive cars, somehow do image detection, face ID, all of this brilliant stuff. It's pretty remarkable. For those of you who don't know, Matt is building Skynet for his job. And the (laughs) thing that's really sad is whenever I say that, Matt doesn't know what I'm talking about because he still hasn't seen any of the Terminator movies. So, you know, please pray for him. It's from Terminator? I didn't know that. Yeah. Because I just had a... Uh, actually, the person who put on the... When we went to the Han Solo movie, that guy, he told me I need to watch the Terminator since everything I work with is AI. Exactly. So had I listened to him sooner, I would have got your reference. And you would sound so much smarter. Maybe I'll watch it tonight. I approve that plan. 
Lewis then asks a question. He says, if we can't fully comprehend or imagine a three-personal being, what's the good in talking about him? Well, in classic Lewis style, he says, what really matters is actually being drawn into that three-personal life. And he says that can begin anytime, even tonight. As Jack likes to say again and again, theology is practical. We've hit on this, but we can't stress this enough. This is the end of Christianity. And that's not what you hear usually. You think it's about stop sinning or forgiveness of sins or love your neighbor. And all those are incredibly important in the process. But those fall into place when you join the the divine life. When you receive that, you participate in that. It's the road. It's not the destination. Yes. I mean, that, that just, oh, my mind, when that, that's where the adventure begins when you understand that. A three-personal God makes sense of our experience, and he uses the example of a Christian kneeling down to say his prayers. He says that he's trying to get in touch with God, but the Christian knows that not only is he trying to pray to God, but the thing that's prompting him to pray is also God, God inside him, what we would typically call the Holy Spirit. But the Christian also knows that all his knowledge about God comes through Christ, the man who was God, and Christ is beside him, helping him to pray, praying with him. In the Bible, it talks about he he ever lives to make intercession for us. And so Lewis says, we can see what's happening. God is the thing to which he is praying, the goal he's trying to reach, and God is the thing inside him which is pushing him on, the motive power. And God is also the road or the bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal. So the whole threefold life of the three-personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. And that's why we traditionally start our prayers in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're entering into that divine life right then and there. Mm -hmm. And I heard that the first time, I was like, Mind blown. And we traditionally make the sign of the cross when we do that as well, because the means by which we enter into that Trinitarian life is only through the power of the cross. And this is how theology started, through experience. We start with a vague understanding of God. Then comes this man, Jesus. And then this community of believers is formed, this society. And they find God inside them. We just celebrated the Feast of Pentecost recently. And this is what Lewis says, the God inside them, directing them, making them able to do things they could not do before. And when they worked it all out, they found that they had arrived at the Christian definition of the three personal God. And I like that point, do things they could not do before. That's where that adventure in the divine life is. You receive graces to do things, simple things like forgive people you couldn't forgive before. Or in this case, extreme things like perform miracles you couldn't perform before. That's the adventure of the divine life. I think in the Greek, when Jesus says, uh, the power of the Most High will come upon you, the Greek behind that is the root of the word dynamite. No way. Yeah, I think so. That's cool. (laughs) I like that. I hope that's right. I I, I hope that's right. I'm reasonably sure. (laughs) I trust you're reasonably sure. But it's that last sentence that really jumps out to me, that they arrived at the Christian definition of the three personal God. Because I like to describe the very first Christians as experiential Trinitarians. They experienced and believed in the Trinity long before Christian language had advanced enough in order to be able to articulate and describe that experience. Oh, that's a brilliant point. I never thought of that. You sometimes hear people say, oh, the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't invented until a lot later. The language wasn't invented 
the philosophical understanding of it. But when you go back to scripture and you go back to the apostolic fathers, the very next generation after the apostles, you find them describing a God who is three personal. You find the description of someone's encounter with this kind of God. And you see very clearly the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and there is only one God. Isaiah 43.10. I am God and there is no other. Doesn't that make Trinity Sunday just take on a whole new meaning? Yeah, we've just had that recently. I always feel sorry for pastors when that comes around. Because <laughs> I often call it, it's bad analogy Sunday. Well, uh, my pastor actually started with a story of Augustine walking on a beach and seeing this boy digging, uh, taking water from the ocean and putting it into this hole. And he goes, oh, I'm trying to move the ocean to this hole. And, and Augustine goes, it's not big enough. It's not deep enough. It can't contain the ocean. The analogy there is it's the same with the Trinity because Augustine wrote an entire book on the Trinity, but our brains are too small and they're not deep enough to comprehend the vastness of the Trinity. That's how he started his homily. So essentially he's saying, I'm not going to be able to explain this very well, so give me some patience. And I think it's worth mentioning that the Trinity is a mystery. That doesn't mean that we can't understand it. I really apologize for the number of times I've rolled my eyes when a sermon has begun. The Trinity is a mystery. That means we can't understand it. It means we can't fully understand it. We can't get to the bottom of it. Exactly. That's a good point. Good to make that. And while there is sometimes difficulty in comprehending the Trinity, as Lewis has said before, one of the reasons he believes Christianity is that it's not what he'd have guessed. In this chapter, he says, it is the simple religions that are the made up ones. (laughs) Yeah, someone doesn't just go make this theology up. We now build to this idea that theology can be considered, at least in a certain sense, as experimental knowledge. And with every types of experiments, there's different kinds. And so he considers the study of rocks, then animals, then humans, and ultimately God. He starts by pointing out, okay, with rocks, the initiative lies entirely on our side. I take that for granted. <laughs> oh, goodness sakes. <laughs> <laughs> I was giving a talk last week and I, I met a guy who is a geologist and it's like, I have so many rock jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't call me by surprise. <laughs> but so we, we have to initiate and study them. Yeah. They rocks no aren't going to come to us. Nope. Studying animals is a little different. They can run away. We or, tr- still- or try and eat you. Yes, they're trying to eat you. So there has to be a small amount of cooperation from the animals. When it comes to human, it's even more different. You require the full cooperation of the human. You can't force them. You can't hunt them, track them down, and cage them. Or or you can, but you can't get what you need. So if we're to become friends, I need your cooperation. Yeah, you can't coerce someone to tell you certain things. Although I can just keep hanging around you and you'll eventually get used to me. (laughs) <laughs> that's a very Lewis thing. Affection. From exactly. The yeah, exactly. And now the big one, God. When it comes to God, the initiative lies on his side. Lewis points out, if he doesn't show himself, nothing you can do will enable you to find him. Lewis actually says something kind of bold. He says that God shows more of himself to some people than others. But he says it's not due to favoritism. He says it's just impossible for him to show himself to a man whose mind and character are in the wrong condition. He compares it to sunlight. Sunlight has no favorites, no preferences, but a dusty mirror isn't going to be able to reflect that light as well as a clear mirror. When I was taking my Augustine course, he has an entire book on salvation by grace. 
And a lot of people talk about salvation by faith, salvation by works. It's grace. Like it's salvation mm-hmm. by grace. And Augustine talks about why that's important. Because in the Christian faith, we know there's free will. So we have to freely choose and say yes to God. We have to ascend to him by our free choice. Yet, doesn't that mean we play this role that could be pride and arrogance? Like, hey, David, I've said yes to him. You haven't. It, it, it seems like it allows that to creep in. But Augustine points out, no, because you're saying yes to something that you could never have said yes to unless it wasn't given to you as a gift. That's why, even though there's free will, even though you have to say yes, it's still saved by grace. It's a grace that you can even say yes. We did not earn the Zoe life. No. So theology is experimental knowledge. But if you're ever going to do an experiment, you need instruments. And science typically uses measuring sticks, thermometers, telescopes, microscopes. And we need something in theology. Yeah, I was wondering this when he said this. He goes, it's experimental. I'm like, well, how do we run an experiment in theology? (laughs) Of course Lewis has an answer. Well, he says there are two main instruments. The first is yourself. He says the, the instrument through which you see God is your whole self. And if a man's self is not kept clean and bright, think of that mirror, his glimpse of God will be blurred. It's like the moon seen through a dirty telescope. And he says this is why horrible nations have horrible religions. They are looking at God through a dirty lens. It's not just an individualistic thing, though. Lewis says that the second instrument we need is the church. And he says something kind of bold. He says, God can show himself as he really is only to real men. And that means not simply to men who are individually good, but to men who are united together in a body, loving one another, helping one another, showing him to one another. For that is what God meant humanity to be like, like players in one band or organs in one body. He concludes that section by saying, Christian brotherhood is, so to speak, the technical equipment for this science. And without these instruments, the self and the church, you're almost certainly to go wrong. And this makes me think of Chesterton. This is a paraphrasing of a quote, but he says, I don't need a church that tells me what I'm doing right. I need a church that tells me what I'm doing wrong. And Jack talks about these people who turn up every few years. And they offer a simplified religion as a substitute for Christian tradition. Exactly. And he compares them to a man who turns up with an old pair of binoculars who sets out to correct real astronomers. Regardless of his own ability, Lewis says he isn't even giving himself a chance. That that person might be brilliant, but if he's using insufficient instruments, his answers are going to be wrong. And so he concludes by saying, if Christianity was something we were making up, of course we could make it easier. But it's not. We cannot compete in simplicity with people who are inventing religions. How could we? We are dealing with fact. Of course, anyone can be simple if he has no facts to bother about. That's powerful. I think that often happens when you look at different kinds of heresies. It's when people will focus on a couple of passages and ignore the ones that don't actually fit with their thesis. And that point that just keeps jumping out at me, we cannot compete. I wrestle with this. You, You ask in your faith, how can we bring this to more people? And the easy answer is dilute it. Mm -hmm. Make it easier, more easily digestible. But no, we're working with facts here. You can't dilute facts. And so that's a tough question that all that faiths need to wrestle with. And we in Christianity have to wrestle with. How do we bring this to people without diluting it? Because the problem is, is if we dilute it, what are we really bringing? And who are we really helping? One of my favorite bands in the world, Casting Crowns, they have a song where there's a lyric, 
What this world needs is for us to stop hiding behind our relevance, blending in so well that people don't see the difference. And it's the difference that sets the world free. If religion is reality, we should communicate reality, not a version of it that's wrong and just more palatable. Well, on that note, yeah, let's pick this up again next week. Please feel free to contact us through restlesspilgrim.net or on Twitter or Instagram at Pints with Jack. We, we love the comments. We love tweets. We love all of it. So we want you guys to engage us. Yeah, we'd love to do another mailbag episode. And please be sure to rate and write us a review on iTunes. It's super important. As we talked about in the mailbag episode, one of the commenters found us just by Googling C.S. Lewis podcast. We only get higher to be able to reach people if we have more ratings and reviews. And to encourage you to write a review, from now on, each episode, I'm going to share with you a review I've written for a podcast that I listen to. So one of my favorites is Reasonable Faith Podcast. This is with Dr. William Lane Craig, the well-known philosopher and evangelist, who I actually saw live recently at that Bishop Barron talk. Here's my review. Dr. William Lane Craig is one of the most successful philosophers alive today. He has a real gift for clarity when speaking about the Christian faith. If you're a budding apologist, as every Christian should be, you need to listen to this podcast. Yeah, I hope someone writes us that nice review. <laughs> well, that's why I'm reading my reviews. If, if, if <laughs> you're you, trying if, to encourage. If you need to think of something to say, I'm sure and soon I'm going to be writing a, a review about how good-looking the hosts are. So. <laughs> Maybe. We're not above subconsciously, emotionally manipulating people. Not at all. And with that, further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>